Okay, um, we're in our Advent series, and we are continuing that tonight. Um, and we're going to talk about um, how Jesus uh, fulfills the Old Testament tabernacle and priesthood tonight, okay? Um, and what he came to accomplish in his first, um, his first advent when he came here tonight. So, all right, um, if you want a title for this message, it's called Jesus is Better. Um, and so we're going to start in the Old Testament. We're going to go to a few places tonight. We're going to start in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, chapter 25. We're going to start there. So, um, it reads, Exodus 25, verses 1 through 8. The Lord spoke to Moses, tell the Israelites to take an offering for me. You are to take my offering from everyone who is willing to give. This is the offering you are to receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, fine linen and goat hair, ram skins dyed red and fine leather, achia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx along with other gemstones for mounting on the ephod and the breastplate. They are to make a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them. So God gives them the instructions to bring offerings to make a sanctuary for them. And some of these, the things he brings, some of them have very um, um, important significance. Gold is representative of deity. Silver uh, is of redemption. Bronze is of judgment. Uh, blue is of divinity or things of he and heavenly in nature. Purple is royalty and scarlet is sacrifice. So they all had significance when he did this. God was very detailed and specific about what he told them to bring because they all had a significance. And he says, they are to make a sanctuary for me. And a sanctuary means a holy place, um, a holy place for him. Um, and this here, here is a um, picture of the tabernacle, all right? Um, and it means the dwelling place. Um, and you see it was, it, was, it was a tent that was draped over a wood frame. And the particulars of the tabernacle taught what it means to have a holy God dwell among them. And so I know it's kind of hard to see, but um, each, each piece represented something. Here you have the Ark of the Covenant, the altar of incense, um, the veil separating the most holy place, which is very important for you to remember that tonight. Um, and this is the veil uh, to form the entrance to the tabernacle. Um, the first veil and then the second veil. And then you have the holy place of the tabernacle right here, the table of showbread, uh, the, frame, the frame structure. And everything has significance. And what's really going to be important tonight is this part here is the holy place where the priest would go to, to offer sacrifices. Now here is the most holy place where only the high priest went once a year. Behind is called the Holy of Holies. And only the high priest went behind that veil once a year. Nobody else was allowed to go behind there. Okay? So you have the holy place for the priest where they offer sacrifices. And the high priest once a year went behind this veil uh, to offer sacrifices. So all of those, um, they all had significance. And it's very important to remember that. Um, and it says, God says, from him to dwell. The inner part is the most holy place, which I just showed you, all right? Now, so that's the tabernacle, all right? And, and, and there's a whole lot more. I, could, I don't have time to get into all of that. But I just wanted to give you a, a brief synopsis, if you will, of what the tabernacle, what it was for, what it represented, and where the, is where the priests went to offer the sacrifices on behalf of the people. Now, in Exodus uh, 28... We, we're we're going to look at the priestly, the priesthood and the priestly garments, all right? And here God says, have your brother Aaron, he's talking to Moses, with his sons come to you from the Israelites to serve me as priest. 
Aaron, his sons Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, those are the priests, make holy garments for your brother Aaron for glory and for beauty. You are to instruct all the skilled artisans whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom to make Aaron's garments for consecrating him to serve me as priest. These are the garments that they must make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a specially woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. All right? They are to make holy garments for your brother Aaron and his sons so that they may serve me as priest. Holy garments. They should use gold. Here's some of those same things. Gold, blue, purple, scarlet yarn, and fine linen. So some of the same materials in the priestly garments are the same in the tabernacle. All right? Um, and he says, make holy garments for your brother Aaron for glory and for beauty. And, and the holy garments were not worn on ordinary occasions. They were only for, for sacred functions. All right? The holy garments. They weren't just for anybody. So for glory and for beauty, and what that means for glory is it exalted the priestly office among the people. All right? Um, it was necessary for the appearance um, so that the people might be inspired um, with due respect for the office and the rights of their religion. They are, they are to respect the office of the priests. So the, the garments kind of symbolize that. And, and the, also the garments were symbolic of truth and purity and other qualities that are going to be found in Christ. All right? And that they render him a high priest on our behalf. And their service had a heavenly meaning. The priest's service had a heavenly meaning. And it says, for glory and for beauty. And then for beauty, it's in harmony with the beauty of the sanctuary. The sanctuary was a very beautified place. And so the garments were similar um, to be beautiful in that sense as well. So we see the tabernacle, and here we see the priestly garments. Okay? Now, here's a picture of what the priestly garments look like. Um, And there's also scriptures that that show you where all of this is found in the Bible. Um, You've seen the pure gold with the inscription, holy to the Lord on it. Um, The 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel, the sash, the ephod, everything that we just read about, the turban, the shoulder straps um, uh, with with all the onyx stones on it and everything. So that's what the priestly garments look like. That's the image of what the priestly garments look like. And they all represented something to it. And only the high priest wore that garment once a year to go behind in the Holy of Holies to, to sacrifice for the people. All right, now, so that's in the Old Testament uh, brief uh, description of the tabernacle and the priest and their garments and their function. Now, let's go to the Old Testament and the book of Hebrews. Um, and we're, we're going to spend most of our time here. So in the book of Hebrews, um, in chapter 8, starting at verse 1. Now, we're, com- we're in the middle of a conversation that the writer of Hebrews is having about the, the superior priesthood of Jesus. Um, you can go back and read chapter 7 in particular, where he talks about, you know, Jesus being uh, a priest after the order of Melchizedek and what all of that means and how his priesthood is better. Um, so we're in the middle of that conversation, but we're going to start in verse 8. Now, he says, starting in verse 1, now the main point of, of what is being said is this. The main point of what I just said in chapter 7. It's what he says. The main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest, all right, who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. That's key. He says, we have this kind of high priest, as opposed to the Old Testament high priest, who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Jesus establishes an eternal priesthood from his priestly seat in glory. His, he ministers to his people and continues his work from the heavenly tabernacle. 
Not the earthly one, the heavenly tabernacle, where he intercedes for us, according to um, Hebrews 7.25. He ever lives to make intercession for the saints. So, but he does this from the heavenly tabernacle, all right? And it says, he sat down. The old Levitical priests never sat down in the Holy of Holies. There was no chair in there. <laughs> they went and did what they had to do, and they got out. So they didn't sat down. So it's here, but it says that Jesus sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. Why did he sit down? Because his work was completed. And we're going to look at all of that in a minute. But he sat down at God's right hand. Now, God's right hand is representative of a place of authority and power. God doesn't have a right hand. But it represents authority. All right? Jesus is in the seat of authority right now. Seated at the right hand of the Father. All right? Um, So, it says... Uh, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. So the priests, when they went into the sanctuary, they had to have an, uh, a sacrifice and an offering. They didn't go in empty-handed. And it says, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary for this high priest, Jesus, also to have something to offer. Jesus didn't go into the heavenly tabernacle empty-handed. And Jesus never went into the earthly tabernacle in the Holy of Holies. He went into the heavenly one, all right? Okay. Um, Jesus serves in a heavenly tabernacle and brings superior gifts, offerings, and sacrifices. Superior, that's the key word. Jesus' priesthood is categorically different. It says... um, it was, it was necessary for this priest to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest since there are those offerings, the gifts prescribed by the law. Um, Jesus, according to the law, the priests were from the tribe of Levi. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. Different tribe. So he couldn't be an earthly priest here on earth because he was from the wrong tribe. So his priesthood is categorically different. All right? Um, He had to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. These serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. What things? The the, the, the tabernacle. All the things in the tabernacle symbolize a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. All right? Now, we're getting a little bit deep tonight. That's okay. All right? We're going in deep water tonight. All right? Um, uh, Christ had no visible sacrifice. All right? His death was not just external action, but spiritual fruit. It wasn't just an external thing that he did, but it produced spiritual fruit. He shed his blood outwardly, but it brought spiritual cleansing inwardly, which the old sacrifices could not do. Okay? All right. Now, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. These serve as a copy and a shell of the heavenly things. As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle, God gave uh, Moses a clear warning. He said, see that you uh, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. He told Moses, make sure you do everything exactly as I showed you. So God was very particular and very detailed. And like I said, it was just a shadow, a copy of the real thing in heaven. So the tabernacle I just showed you was just symbolic of the heavenly tabernacle. Okay? Uh, But he told Moses, 
Be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. See, God, when it comes to worship, God is very particular. See, we don't just worship any old kind of way. All right, did we want to? Um, it was very detailed. Um, the earthly tabernacle was symbolic. It was a shadow of what was to come. It pointed to the glory of the priestly ministry of Christ, is what the tabernacle and the priesthood did. It pointed to the, uh, uh, the glory and the, of the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. The construction of the earthly tabernacle foreshadowed a deeper and more profound tabernacle. It foreshadowed a, a, um, a deeper and more profound tabernacle. It was just a blueprint. You ever see a blueprint of a building? It's not the building. It's just a blueprint of what it's going to look like. What it, this, that's, what the, that's what the tabernacle is. It was a blueprint, okay? For the fullness, to, um, it, was a, it was a tabernacle, a blueprint for the fullness to come in Christ. Jesus does his work of ministry in the true heavenly tabernacle. And the priesthood without sacrifice is empty. Now, he didn't bring a physical sacrifice, but he brought a sacrifice, which we're going to talk about in a minute. Because the priest had to bring something. All right? All right. The outer part of the sanctuary, which we saw, is where they offered sacrifices. And that typified Christ dying. They offered sacrifices on the, out, on the out, outside of the t- sanctuary. The inner part typified Christ inter- interceding for us. He is the true tabernacle in heaven. He went into the real holy of holies. Okay? Follow me. He is the true tabernacle. Jesus is. And in heaven. And he went into the, to the real holy of holies. The form of the tabernacle referred to something else. Like the tabernacle we showed. It referred to something else. All right? To something... Uh, so since the tabernacle referred to something else, so must the rites and the whole priesthood be pointing to something else because they were just symbolic. There was nothing permanent about them. It was always to be temporary. And that's why what, what, what God said, make sure that you do everything according to the pattern as it was shown to you on the mountain. When, G, when, when Moses was on that mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, I think this is where he got the vision for the tabernacle, when he was on the mountain. Okay, while the people were down there acting the fool, God was speaking to Moses about this tabernacle. But he was very specific. Like I said, in the Old Testament, when it came to worship, God was very detailed, even with the temple. See, because worship is so important. God is holy, all right? And so, when it comes to worship, we can't just run up on God in no kind of way because he's holy. So, he gave us specific details of how you worship me. I want to show you, Moses, exactly how to do this. So, when we come to worship, it ain't playtime. It ain't playtime. That's a very serious thing. And God was, is very serious about worship. He was very detailed. God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The truth of how God said we ought to worship him. All right, now, uh, verse 6. Verse 5, for, for God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry. And to that degree, he's the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. Okay, follow me. It says, but Jesus, contrast, has now obtained a superior ministry than the Old Testament priest. Superior. 
the priesthood, the priests entered the sanctuary to pay for their own sins first, and then the people. Jesus entered the heavenly tabernacle to secure salvation for his people. They went in to offer sacrifices first for their own sin because they were sinners, and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus went into the heavenly tabernacle not to offer sins for himself, but to secure salvation for us. That is the grace of God to sinners. That is the grace of God to us, where he sent his son to offer. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me, let me stop. All right. <laughs> this is good, y'all. This is really good. All right. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant. Mediator. What is a mediator? A mediator is a go-between. All right? Someone who mediates between two parties with a view to producing peace. That's what a mediator is. When you need somebody to mediate for you, it means I need you to bring peace between me and this other person. Jesus, it says, is the mediator of a better covenant, better than the Old Testament covenant. A mediator is one who acts as a guarantee so as to secure something which otherwise would not be obtained. One who acts as a guarantee so as to secure something which otherwise would not be obtained. If Jesus had not done what he did, we were all going straight to hell. But he was a mediator. Father, I'm getting ahead of myself again. All right. All right. First Timothy chapter 2. Uh, very popular scripture, First Timothy. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind. Who is that? The man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony at the proper time. One mediator between God and mankind, Jesus. There's not, there's not two or three mediators. There's only one. His name is Jesus. Muhammad's not a mediator. Buddha's not a mediator. One mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Now, like I said, a mediator is a go-between, but also there's more to a mediator. Salvation necessitates that the mediator possess the nature and the attributes of those towards whom he acts. Apart from sin. I'm going to read that again. Salvation necessitates that the mediator possess the nature and the attributes of those towards whom he acts. Apart from sin, only by being both God and man could Jesus comprehend the claims of the one and the needs of the other. <laughs> only by being both God and man could Jesus comprehend the claims of the one, I am God, and the needs of the other. You're a sinner. You need a savior. Claims and needs could only be met by one who himself, being sinless, would offer himself as an appeasing sacrifice on behalf of men. Jesus had to be God. The Savior had to be divine. He couldn't be just an angel, a created being. He had to be God because he had to be perfect. God requires a perfect sacrifice 
for sin. Jesus, as God, is that perfect sacrifice. Only God can be the perfect sacrifice to cover our sins, y'all. And he also had to be able to relate to us as human beings. So he had to be God and man. The theosanthropist is the theological term. God in flesh, the incarnate, the theosanthropist, the God-man. Now I can be the mediator because I'm both. <sighs> okay, all right. All right, I'm going to prove this. Hebrews chapter 2. All right. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, that's talking about us. Since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these flesh and blood. He became a man. So that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death. That is the devil. <laughs> destroy. Jesus destroyed death through death. Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. That's talking about us. Scared to die. That's the number one fear that people have in the world, death. Next to public speaking. Before public speaking is death. <laughs> people are just scared to die. And free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Verse 16. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. It says, it's clear that he does not reach out to help angels. He didn't, he didn't, didn't die for Gabriel, Michael, and them. He died for human beings named Rachel and Nick and, and Julie and Justin and he didn't die for angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Who's Abraham's offspring? Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way. He had to be like us in every way, it says, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God. Merciful, he can have mercy because he was, one of, he was like me at one point. He can have mercy on us because I've been there. So that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. To make atonement for the sins of the people. The covering of our sins before God. He had to become like me to do that. But he also had to be God to do that. Verse 18, for since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. That's why the Bible says we can come boldly to the throne of grace. So we don't have a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was but in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Father, I know what it's like to be a human being. I was one. I know what it's like to be in the flesh, Father. Have mercy. I can have mercy because I know what it's like to walk in the flesh. He had to become like you and me in order to be the mediator between us and God, to put us right in right back relationship ver vert vertically with God. Okay. Uh, all right. Um,
Now, the first, is that, no, that's not what I want. Um, I'm going back to, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, verse, um, but yes, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. See, if the first covenant was, if there was nothing wrong with it, there would be no need for a new covenant. But it wasn't faultless. But finding fault with his people, he says, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Okay, all right. He said, if the first covenant had been faultless, the first covenant was incomplete. It, was, it wasn't final. It needed something more. The law in its morality was faultless and blameless. There was nothing wrong with the law. But in saving us, it was defective. It couldn't save us. Even though the law itself was faultless, it was defective. The problem was not with the law. The problem was with us. It pointed to something greater, something lasting, and something eternal, the law did. And listen, every sacrifice foreshadowed the day when sacrifices would stop. Every sacrifice that was made in the Old Testament foreshadowed the day when sacrifices would stop. Well, what day was that? It happened on the cross when Jesus said, it is finished. No more sacrifice. The law pointed to that day. God's purpose in the Old Covenant was in part to inform people of the moral law, convict them of sin, to establish patterns of sacrifice, priesthood, and the promise of salvation. And it was all fulfilled in Jesus. All fulfilled in Jesus. The perfection, the human failure to achieve perfection, required the promise of a second better covenant. The failure of human, uh, the, the human failure to achieve perfection. Look, but finding fault with his people. Listen, who is the fault with? Us. Not the covenant. He says, see, the days are coming. Now, he's quoting Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. That's what he's quoting here. He says, see, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, a new covenant, and with the house of Judah, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, both. I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. It's going to be totally different from that covenant. I show no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. That was the problem. He said they didn't continue in it. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. He said, all right, here's a new covenant coming right here. Here's the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. He says, the new covenant is going to be like this. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. See, under the old covenant, the priests were, the, were, were to keep the knowledge of the law, and the people sought uh, the law through the priest. The priests, were, the priests are the Old Testament equivalent of New Testament pastors. New Testament pastors are the Old Testament equivalent of priests. They were the ones who taught the law. They were the quote-unquote preachers. All right? And the people went to the, in the Old Covenant, the people went to the priests to find out the law, what the law says. He said, but look, um, under this New Covenant, he says, 
Not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother or sister saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. How are they going to know him? Through the word, through the law, through the Holy Spirit. In the new covenant, the Holy Spirit teaches every believer. The Holy Spirit teaches every believer. Now, he's not saying that you don't need a pastor, you don't need a teacher, that's not the point. The point is everybody will be able to know God for themselves. Through the written word of God, through the Holy Spirit, they will all know me under this new covenant that was inaugurated through Jesus Christ, the mediator. Our firmness doesn't depend on authority of humans, okay? God himself teaches. Now, I'm, listen, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not disqualifying my, my position as a pastor. <laughs> I'm not saying you don't need me. <laughs> but the point is, you have the ability to know God for yourself through your own personal study. Now, listen, it should be to the point where if I'm wrong and I'm out, I go crazy, you'd be like, wait a minute, hold up, that ain't God. Why? Because I know the Word and the Holy Spirit lives in me, and He is the fact checker. <laughs> you don't have to go to the priest to find out what the law says. You got your own written law called the Bible. Study it. Read it. That's what he's saying here under this new covenant. He said, I will be their God, and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest. Everybody, from the children to the everybody. For I will forgive their wrongdoing, and I will never again remember their sins. Did you hear that? See, that's why Jesus' better covenant, better promises, right there. That's part of the better covenant, the better promises. I will forgive their wrongdoing and never again remember their sins. You realize when you repent, God doesn't remember that? Even if you try to bring it up to him, you're like, what are you talking about? When you repent, God doesn't throw that back up in your face a year and a half later. He doesn't do that. He said, I won't even remember. By saying a new covenant... He has declared that the first is obsolete. And what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. He says, by saying a new covenant, a new covenant of a different kind, it supersedes the old covenant. And Jesus' ministry fulfills Jeremiah 31. He said, this new covenant is a better covenant with better promises, and it supersedes the old covenant. Why? Because Jesus is a better high priest. Okay. Now, we're going to walk through the whole chapter of Hebrews chapter 9. All right? Now, don't get nervous. (laughs) I know I don't have all night, but I got some time. Okay. Now... Now, the first covenant also had regulations for ministry and an earthly sanctuary. 
okay? For a tabernacle was set up. The tabernacle we just, we just talked about, we just went through. It was set up. And in the first room, which is called the holy place, which we showed, were the lampstand, the table, the presentation loaves. We saw all of that. I showed you where all of that was in the tabernacle, okay? Behind the second curtain was a tent called the most holy place, the holy of holies. Showed you that. It had the gold altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered with gold on all sides, in which was a gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. That was all in the tabernacle. The cherubim of glory were above the Ark, overshadowing the mercy seat. It is not possible to speak about these things in detail right now. Paul said, look, I ain't got time to go into all of that. And I'm going to say the same thing Paul said. I ain't got time to get into all that. <laughs> all right? But to give you a brief synopsis of what the tabernacle, what was in the tabernacle. With these things prepared like this, the priests entered the first room repeatedly performing their ministry. The priests had to go in over and over again to do this, repeatedly, to perform their ministry. Right? Okay. But the high priest alone enters the second room. Like I said, the high priest went into the second room, the Holy of Holies, and he does that only once a year, right? It's called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Jews celebrate that every year, around this time, actually, uh, the Day of Atonement, where uh, it's called Yom Kippur. That's what they celebrate. That's what they're celebrating right here. The high priest alone enters the second room, and he does that only once a year, and never without blood. Like I said, he didn't go in there empty-handed. He had to go in with some blood, right? Okay. Which he offers for himself and for the, sins of the, for the sins that people had committed in ignorance. See, God even covered the people's ignorance sin, even if it wasn't something that they did intentionally. Because you do something unintentionally sinful. God said, I'll cover that too. God is gracious. Amen? He's gracious. But he went in once a year, but never without blood. Um, verse 8, the Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. God says, okay, you still can't come close to me. It ain't time for that yet. The Holy Spirit was making it clear that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed while the first tabernacle was still standing. Only the high priest can come here. Verse 9, this is a symbol for the present time, symbolic again, during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. See, every time they offered something, it didn't clear their conscience of their sin. It was symbolic for the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the worshiper's conscience. They are physical regulations and only deal with food, drink, and various washings imposed until the time of the new order. Temporary. But Christ... But Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, 
not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not the tabernacle we just saw. He says, in the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered the most holy place once for all time. Listen, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. When Jesus went into the heavenly tabernacle, he didn't take a bull. He didn't take a goat. He entered the most holy place where only the high priest could go. He's a high priest. He entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood having obtained eternal redemption. Lord, have mercy. Did y'all hear that? The high priest of the Old Testament couldn't obtain eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. That's what it did. It sanctified them temporarily. It says, if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Lord Jesus. If the blood of animals could temporarily cleanse you, what about the blood of the eternal lamb? This is all he did in his first advent when he came. This is why he came. Put the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, he offered himself. How could that not cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, Jesus' sacrifice, not, it, it cleanses the, even our conscience from serving dead works. What dead works? The dead works of offering all of those uh, bulls and goats and lambs. Dead works. But God had to do something in the Old Testament to show you how he felt about it. Listen, when, when, they, when they slaughtered the animals in the Old Testament, the blood, that was not a clean, that was a bloody mess cutting the throats of bulls and lambs. Listen, God was saying, this is how I feel about sin. Blood everywhere. God said, that's how I feel about sin. It should be you. Uh, therefore, he is the mediator. There's that word again. The go-between. He's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of the internal inheritance. Those who are called, not everybody. Those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. A death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. God said, I don't even cover the ten sins in the first covenant through Jesus. Through his death. 
where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established. So a will is not put into effect until the person dies, right? For a will is valid only when people die, since it is never in effect while the one who made it is living. A will means nothing while a person is still living. That is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. Something had to die. God always required blood for payment of sin, always. For a will is invalid when, when peop, only when people die, since it is never in effect while the one who made it is living. That is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats, along with water, scarlet, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people. So he sprinkled everything with blood. The blood of the, of the calves and the goats sprinkled it on the people. Some of us would have just lost our mind right there. That's nasty. <laughs> but God said, listen, blood. It should be yours, but I'm going to use a goat instead. You're welcome. That is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people, according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats along with water, scarlet, wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. In the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood. Everything in the tabernacle we just saw, he sprinkled with blood. Covering everything with blood. According to the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. If you want to be forgiven, you need to let me sprinkle you with this, with this lamb's blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves to be purified with better sacrifices than these. It was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be purified with these sacrifices. All of those symbols had to be sprinkled with, with blood. If that was necessary, he said, but the heavenly things themselves had to be purified with better sacrifices than the blood of bulls and goats. That wasn't sufficient for the heavenly. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one. That's not what he did. He didn't enter the sanctuary uh, made with hands that they built in Exodus 25, which we looked at. He didn't enter that sanctuary, but into heaven itself. So that he might now appear in the presence of God for us. He didn't go into the tabernacle. He went before God himself. Father, I know that you, that you require a sacrifice for sin. Take mine. Father, I know that you, you require blood to pay for sin. Father, take mine. Use my blood, Lord. Use my blood, Father. Use my body as a, as a sacrifice. Behold, I come in the volume of the book to do your will, O God. Prepare me a body, he said. 
Father, I'll go down. Prepare me a body. I know that's what you really want. It's a perfect sacrifice. Not something symbolic or just a shadow, but you require a perfect, real sacrifice. Here I am. Jesus, the second person of the triune Godhead, said, I'll go. He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another. It said once. He said he didn't do this many times. Otherwise, he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. If that's what he did, he would have to die over and over and over and over again. But the Bible says he did it once. That's all it took. See, when it's a perfect sacrifice, you don't have to keep doing it. See, because the blood of those animals wasn't sufficient, God, that's not really what God required. It was temporary and symbolic of what was to come. The blood of those animals uh, covered people's sins. Jesus' sacrifice removed it. Did you hear what I just said? God, I wish I had a Pentecostal church right now. God. <laughs> oh, Jesus. Okay. Oh. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sins by the sacrifice of himself. He has entered one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sins by the sacrifice of himself. <sighs> and just as it is appointed for people to die once, and after this judgment, no reincarnation, so also Christ, having been offered once, once to bear the sins of many, to bear the sins of many, not everybody, Whole nother message. <laughs> so also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. He came the first time. What? But he will appear a second time. Listen, not to bear sin. Did that already. But to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. <laughs> he said, listen, when I come back, I'm going to finish this thing. <laughs> when I come back... <laughs> I'm going to bring to salvation, the ultimate salvation of those who are waiting for me. Are you waiting for him? See, my first time I came, my first advent, I'm coming to pay for sins. To fulfill all the tabernacle symbolism and priesthood symbolism. That's what I'm doing the first time I'm coming. But the second time when I come back, not to pay for sins, did that already. I'm coming back to glorify you. That's what he did in his first advent. He fulfilled all the symbolism in the Old Testament tabernacle, the priesthood, but he came to fulfill all of that. He said, I didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. It was all about me. He said in Luke 24, he, said, he told the Pharisees, he said, look, you, you, you search the scriptures, but in them you think you have eternal life. He said, but they testify of me. He said, from Genesis to Malachi is all about me. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt. That Word is tabernacled <laughs> among us. He is the true and living tabernacle. He came to tabernacle among us to fulfill all the Old Testament symbolism. That's who our Savior is. That's who came on our behalf in his first advent. He came to do all of that. And then he said, it's finished. Behold, I come in the volume of the book to do your will, O God. And this was all from the foundation of the world. This was planned from the foundation of the world. This was not a, 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 a second opinion or second. No, 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 no. So as we celebrate communion, we're celebrating what he did in his first advent. He is, he went into the heavenly holy of holies before God himself, which the high priest of the Old Testament could not do. It was all symbolic. But Jesus went, Daniel 7 says, he went before the ancient of days <laughs> as the son of man. And he offered himself to God, the Father, on our behalf. That's what Christmas is really all about. His first appearing he fulfilled all the Old Testament symbolism for us.